Anita Earls, a candidate for the state Supreme Court. For our listeners who don't know you, could you just introduce yourself to them? Sure. Yeah. My name's Anita Earls. I have been a civil rights attorney in North Carolina for 30 years. Most recently, I was executive director of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. And it's really the experience of litigating civil rights cases and seeing how important it is that we have a fair and impartial court that led me to want to run for this office. And you founded Southern Coalition for Social Justice, right? I did. I was the founder of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, yes. How long ago was that? 11 years now, in okay. 2007. Okay. How difficult has it been to take a back seat to some of that work while you've been running? It was a very difficult decision to leave the Southern Coalition. I really enjoyed that work and uh, representing the clients that I was working with. And we had a statewide practice as well as actually across the South. So I had clients in Virginia and Florida and Texas and Georgia. But I think that it's so important that we have the opportunity to have fair and impartial courts in North Carolina. That challenge seemed one worth trying to meet. What made you become a civil rights attorney? I grew up in a mixed-race family. My father's black, my mother's white. And when they met and fell in love in Missouri, it was illegal for them to be married in that state. And so they moved out to Washington State, and it wasn't until I was seven years old that the Supreme Court decided a case that invalidated those laws. But through that experience and really many others seeing the barriers that my family faced, I, from a young age, wanted to be a lawyer to try to work towards equal justice under the law. I see. So you, were, you grew up in Washington? I did. Okay. And I assume, you know, so this, this all happened when you were so young. You were seven years old. And even if the laws were overturned, it probably took quite a while for people's attitudes to change, I'm guessing. Absolutely. How did that inform you growing up? Well, just to make it real, to be in a, a family who's considered illegal in half the country, I remember very vividly, we first lived in the black neighborhood. And then when I was in second grade, my family moved to a predominantly, well, an all white neighborhood. We were the only black family in the neighborhood. And my brother and I, uh, as we tried to ride our bikes on the street, like kids do at that age, one of our neighbors would turn her garden hose on us and, you know, tell us we weren't welcome there. And so there were a lot of different ways in which we were made to feel that we had no place. What would you and your brother say to each other when that sort of thing happened? Was he an older brother, younger, younger. brother? Younger. My brother was two years younger than I am. Well, it was very frightening. And we didn't understand what we had done wrong. <laughs> Our mere existence was somehow offensive to people um, when we hadn't done anything different than what other kids do. I see. Yeah. Now, your brother was in a tragedy. That's correct. And that's something that happened, you know, much later. So just 12 years ago, after I had been a civil rights attorney for over 15 years, after I had been a deputy assistant attorney general in the U.S. Department of Justice office in the main justice building on Pennsylvania Avenue, my brother was murdered and the person who killed him was never brought to trial. No charges. Well, charges were originally filed, but then they were dismissed. And that experience really caused me to wonder whether, or to doubt, to feel that all that I'd been working for was just futile. And it took me a little while, along with uh, drawing faith and courage from the clients and communities that I've been working with, to conclude that I could and should still be a lawyer and still work for justice. You had to go through this kind of 
almost this existential period of wondering what you were doing and whether or not it was making any difference, I guess. That's right. My whole career had been based on this belief that with good lawyers representing individuals who otherwise might not have a voice, that the courts would be fair and that it would be a place where you could get justice. And when I could not even have a day in court for my own family, I felt like a fraud. I, you know, going around to communities and saying, yes, I can represent you. Let's bring this lawsuit. Let's try to get justice. I felt like I was lying to them. How did that end up resolved? Did it ever resolve itself? Well, yes. So that's really what led me to one of the men, several things that led mm -hmm. me to leave the UNC Center for Civil Rights and create a new nonprofit public interest law organization to create the Southern Coalition for Social Justice was really out of a conviction that I had to work harder and I had to do more. Um, instead of being discouraged and intimidated and sort of turned my back on the whole enterprise, I had to give it my best again <laughs> or more. And I think seeing the courage of clients who've been willing to step forward and be plaintiffs in civil rights cases was a large part of what inspired me. And I have to say, one of the most rewarding things about being a candidate, however difficult it is to be on the campaign trail and the challenges of raising enough money to be a credible candidate, one of the most wonderful things has been going around the state and nearly everywhere I go, someone comes up to me and says, I remember when you represented me in this case. I want to tell you what happened later. I've had clients across the state and now kind of to touch base with them again is really rewarding and, it, and it's taught me that the effort has definitely been worth it. You said you were with the UNC Center for Civil Rights. Is that one of the groups that was disbanded by the legislature? The Center for Civil Rights was not disbanded, but the Board of Governors, uh -huh. not the legislature, but the Board of Governors of the UNC system voted to restrict the center's litigation activities, essentially to say they cannot engage in litigation. So they can do research and study and teaching but they can't represent clients in court anymore. What does that do to their entire purpose, their mission? Well, I don't want to speak for the center because I haven't been involved with it. I left in 2007, mm -hmm. and this restriction came in later. But I will say that I strongly believe that if Julius Chambers were alive, um, he would not at all be happy with that turn of events. His career was about giving individuals and communities a voice who didn't have a voice. And I remember very vividly, let me just say a word about Julius Chambers. I remember very vividly watching him. I got to sit with at council table with him when he argued the Shaw versus Hunt redistricting case in the U.S. Supreme Court. That was one of my earlier experiences in the mid-90s with Julius Chambers. My last time going to court with Julius Chambers was in district court in Montgomery County, defending a county commissioner who'd been charged with disturbing the peace at a county commission meeting. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this misdemeanor criminal charge, Julius Chambers and I went to district court in Montgomery County and got that charge dismissed. Um, he was an, an attorney who stood up against injustice wherever it happened. And the notion that a center named after him could not represent clients in court just is not right. It sounds like his mission was, you articulated it, very similar to your mission with the Southern Coalition, it sounds like. Well, yes, although, I, I mean, he's, I couldn't begin to, I mean, he's been 
my role model and a mentor, but he achieved so much in his career. He, beyond being this amazing, brilliant lawyer who shaped the law in almost every area of civil rights law, so school desegregation, employment discrimination, voting rights. He argued landmark cases in all of those areas of the law. Mm-hmm. He was also a chancellor at you know North Carolina Central University. Education was always extremely important to him, and the opportunity to guide that institution and try to um, enhance the way it creates opportunities for students um, was also something really important to him. Tell me about your teaching at UNC and Duke. I enjoyed both those. I taught first at University of Maryland Law School. Mm. At Duke, I taught undergraduates, but it was a course on racial justice advocacy. And I enjoyed teaching very much. It's I would say it's one example of where... Your role as a teacher is very different from your role as an advocate. And as a teacher, you need to make sure your students come away knowing all of the different positions about the law that are taken in that area of the law. And I think at the same time, inspire them to have a respect and passion for the law. And that's different than when you're representing clients in mm-hmm. court as an advocate. Your critics are pointing to the fact that you are an advocate and you've been a litigant in all of these cases that could come before the court. So how do you separate that from being a judge? Well, many judges have litigated before they go on the bench. Um, and, you know, typically we don't question whether a prosecutor who represented the state and prosecuted criminals can be fair once they get on the bench. But many of our judges started out in their careers as prosecutors. For me personally, I've really been fortunate in my career to have a number of settings where my role is not to be an advocate, but to apply the law fairly. So I would point to the two and a half years that I was on the State Board of Elections, where even though I was appointed by Governor Bev Perdue, a Democrat, I was part of the board that unanimously fined former Governor Mike Easley, also a Democrat, for campaign finance violations. For the past 20 years, I've been in settings where I'm in a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. So we represent clients no matter what party they belong to. The question is, have their rights been violated and how do we apply the law to the facts? I see. What are some of the cases that you're most proud of? One case that I'm proud of is a case I worked on when I was in private practice in Charlotte. I represented a man named Junius Wilson, who at the time I met him was in his late 80s and had been in Cherry Hospital for most of his life. He's a deaf mute, but he actually, you know, Cherry Hospital was a hospital for people with mental illnesses. He did not have a mental illness. He just was unable to communicate, uh, African-American man. And shortly after he was first brought to Cherry Hospital, he was part of the eugenics program and castrated. So the life that he led was, you know, a really challenging one. I can't imagine what it was like to not be able to hear or speak, but to be in a mental institution and to, you know, have these things done to you that you had no control over. I represented him in a lawsuit against the state to get some damages, some measure of compensation for what the state had subjected him to, and to try to improve the quality of his life for the rest of his life. He's deceased now. You know, I think we don't always know the extent of which historically people have suffered pretty grave injustices. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the litigation over gerrymandering you've been involved in. I mean, this has just gone on and on for seemingly forever. It's like eight years now we've been involved in lawsuits and they could make their way all all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court again, it looks like. Tell me about the cases that you are involved in. 
In 2011, um, I represented the NAACP, A. Philip Randolph Institute, League of Women Voters, and Democracy North Carolina, four nonprofit, nonpartisan organizations, in the lawsuit in state court challenging both the legislative districts, so state house and state senate districts, as well as the congressional districts. And back in 2011, we asked the state court to issue a preliminary injunction because we said these districts are unconstitutional, they should not be used. That was denied, and it did take all this time litigating both in state court and then on behalf of different plaintiffs in federal court. And it was finally the U.S. Supreme Court, which decided 9-0, a summary affirmance, without briefing, without oral argument, said yes. <laughs> the trial court was right. Those legislative districts are an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. In a separate case, if the federal court said the congressional districts that were drawn in 2011 were an unconstitutional racial gerrymander, but then when the legislature went to redraw, one of their explicit criteria was partisan advantage. And they were said, we acknowledge this is a partisan gerrymander, but we think it's legal. We will not consider any plan unless it draws 10 Republican districts and three Democratic districts. So I represented the League of Women Voters in litigation again in federal court, alleging that the 2016 congressional districts were a partisan gerrymander. The three-judge court ruled in our favor and agreed unanimously. Um, some of the most powerful evidence, I think, in that case came from the evidence of how the city of Asheville is divided in half in the congressional districts and people talking about why it doesn't make sense to include Asheville residents in a district that stretches all the way down to Shelby and Gastonia. That case is still pending now in the U.S. Supreme Court. I see. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're talking on the day where we just had this cloture vote on Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, you know, people's focus is really diverted, I think, from these local races over to what's happening on the national level. But we have this major race, your race, on the state level. What are the stakes in a race for the state Supreme Court? It is certainly clear to me that given what's happening with our federal courts, our state courts around the country are an important source of protection of our rights. So I think people may not realize that our state constitution has even more robust guarantees of protection of individual rights than the federal constitution. In North Carolina in particular, our judicial elections and our Supreme Court races have become highly contested. In 2016, the Supreme Court race in the state was the second most expensive in terms of money spent in the country, surpassed only by Pennsylvania's judicial elections. And we have a legislature that passed five separate laws trying to impact the outcome of this particular race. So they made it partisan, then they eliminated the primary, then they changed the, where this race would appear on the ballot, then they passed a law specifically intended to make sure that my name would be last of the three names on the ballot. And then after it was clear that two Republicans had filed and one Democrat, they passed a law to apply retroactively to say that Chris Anglin, the other Republican in the race, could not have the designation of a Republican after his name because he had not filed in that party more than 90 days before the filing period. That law, that last one, was ruled unconstitutional. So his chosen party, his Republican, uh, will now appear on the ballot. But that kind of maneuvering to try to impact the outcome of election, I think, is pretty extraordinary. 
And the other thing that's at stake is the question of whether or not there'll be a court packing effort. There is a constitutional amendment. One of the six constitutional amendments would change how vacancies are filled and would give the legislature the power to appoint when there's a judicial vacancy. When that bill was considered in committee, uh, Representative Darren Jackson said, we understand what this is about. The goal is if, um, if Anita Earls is defeated and this constitutional amendment is passed, then the legislature, when it goes into session in November after the election, can increase the court from seven to nine, appoint two Republicans, and switch the balance of power on the court to five Republican, four Democrat. So I believe that the voters should decide who sits on the court, not the legislature, and that it's important that people use their right to vote for judges um, because they're really at risk of losing it. Yeah. So this state Supreme Court right now, it's a four to three split Democrat over Republican at the current time due to the last race, which was Michael Morgan beating the incumbent Bob Edmonds. Now you're running against an incumbent Republican justice, Barbara Jackson. And so that would, if you won, that would make it five to two. So if there was this court packing maneuver, as you mentioned, it would make it five to four right. if the legislature was to be able to do that. Right. So they would need the voters to approve that amendment, essentially what happens. So are you opposed to the amendment? Well, as a judicial candidate, I am allowed to comment on measures that affect the administration of justice. And my, my career has been about protecting the right to vote. And I see this amendment as a first step by the legislature to end the right to vote for judges in this state. And they have said as much publicly. So I'm opposed to the amendment on the grounds that I think that it's a healthy thing that we elect judges in this state, and I don't want to see us move towards ending that, taking away that right from voters. I see. And there's another amendment that would require photo ID to vote. And you've been involved in litigation over North Carolina's voter ID law or their broad elections law, I believe. Is that right? I was involved representing plaintiffs in the challenge to the law that was passed that ended same-day registration, cut back early voting, ended 16- and 17-year-old pre-registration. But I also represented plaintiffs in state court over the voter ID requirement. The voters certainly are now going to have the option of deciding whether or not they think that that's a good thing for our democracy. My commitment is that as a judge, I would uphold the law. And I would apply the law fairly. You know, whatever the constitutional provisions are, I would apply them fairly and equally to everyone. I see. But you're opposed to voter ID in principle? What I can say about my record, what I've mm -hmm. done in my career, I've represented plaintiffs who would be disenfranchised by a voter ID requirement, and I've sought to vindicate their rights. I see. Okay. So, and a lot of your work, it sounds like, has been for people who may be kind of on the margins, you know, kind of left out or disenfranchised by certain laws. Is that how you would sort of describe your work over the years? Well, I can tell you, I came out of law school with a firm conviction that it was my goal to represent people who otherwise would not have legal representation. Explain to us why you're going to be listed last on the ballot and what the potential impact of that is. The potential impact is the belief amongst political consultants and observers that voters with low information, not, like not knowing anything about the candidates, when they come to that race, they'll just check the first box because they don't really know anything about who these people are. Mm -hmm. 
So in 2016, when the race was nonpartisan, for a while it was alphabetical, then reverse alphabetical every other year. And then the legislature passed a law saying we're going to draw a letter out of the hat and start with that letter so that it's random, right? Instead of alphabetical, non-alphabetical, which people could predict in advance. So candidates could decide, okay, this is a year where it's alphabetical. The incumbent's last name is whatever. Mine is whatever. You know, it, it was allowing some gamemanship, I guess, in theory. So the law was passed that said before the election, we're going to have a neutral person, I think they use a child, uh, to, to pull a letter out of a hat, and that will be where we start. Well, that's all fine and good. That's random. What the legislature did for my race was to say, oh, you know, for the primaries, the letter that was picked out was F. And so we're just going to use that same letter for the general election. So they knew who was on the ballot. And so they were rigging, you know, they were rigging it with knowledge. It was no longer random. They knew what they were doing. They didn't have anyone pull a new letter out. So it basically, it's, this is so convoluted. So it starts at F and then it just goes. Right. Right. So Earl's E right before F. Guaranteed to be last. <laughs> so I'm, I'm counting on that, uh, that proverbial, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. <laughs> that was one they made the racist partisan again i've heard opinions about that that range from you know our judicial races should not be partisan to it gives people more information to have that label next to right. the name what do you think about that i think that there's some evidence that the party label helps voters and what i would point to there or what has struck me is looking at the 2016 election results uh, if you look at the number of people who vote for the top of the ticket and then don't vote for the judicial races, there were some 300,000 people who voted for, I think I'm right, that it was governor, but not the Court of Appeals. So there was, And that Court of Appeals was partisan, but there were some 300,000 people who cared about top of the ticket, didn't vote Court of Appeals. There were a total of 800,000 people that didn't vote in the Supreme Court race. So some half a million people voted for Court of Appeals candidates that were partisan, but did not vote at all in the nonpartisan Supreme Court race, which is kind of counterintuitive that they would care about the Court of Appeals and not care about the Supreme Court. Right. So one, you know, one difference between those two races was that there was a partisan label for Court of Appeals and no partisan label for Supreme Court. Yeah. But I would also say, having spent the past... 11 months campaigning and observing the campaigns of people who are running for state legislature, for congressional, my race is still much less partisan in the sense that I'm not talking about policy outcomes. I don't have a policy platform. All three of us judicial candidates say that we care about a fair and impartial judiciary. What voters really have to distinguish us is our record and our past experience. And that's really different from the politicians who are talking about their policies on health care or uh, minimum wage or education or gun control. Like all of those are pretty hotly contested, heated, partisan debates. We aren't having that kind of debate. We're talking about mm -hmm. things like judicial philosophy. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so yes, it is partisan. But it is not nearly as intensely political as the other races that are on the ballot. You had also mentioned that your race will be listed lower on the ballot. So I think it's this principle of voter fatigue. You know, we're going to have six amendments. We're going to have, um, you know, a lot of other races up at the top. The thinking is that people may get tired 
right. of filling in bubbles when they get to that part of the ballot. Would that hurt you or, I mean, help you? What's the thinking on that? Well, first, as someone who cares deeply about our democracy working well and as someone who really believes that our democracy only will work well when we hear everyone's voices, to me, what hurts is if people don't feel able to participate. These judicial races happen to be in the middle of the ballot. We come after the legislative seats but before the constitutional amendments. And what I hope is just that people will just take a little bit of time to learn who the candidates are and what they stand for and to exercise their voice and that we're all hurt if people sit this out. The state Supreme Court must adjudicate so many issues of separation of powers and there's been this endless litigation between Democratic Governor Roy Cooper and the Republican legislature. What's your judicial philosophy, I guess, on the separation of powers? Well, I would point out that the first landmark separation of powers case was McCrory versus Berger. It was Governor Pat McCrory who sued the legislature when they were seeking to take away some of his powers. And I think it's extraordinary that five former governors of both parties and five former chief justices of our Supreme Court have all come out against the two constitutional amendments that would alter the balance of power between the executive and the legislature. So that's something important for people to know and take into account. In terms of judicial philosophy, I think the Constitution, as it's written, sets up a state government. And as particularly if you look historically, if you look at the 1868 North Carolina Constitution and then how it was carried over into the 1971 Constitution, there was an explicit choice in 1868 to have a government that had separation of powers. Prior to 1868, the courts and the Supreme Court in particular, was the creation of the legislature. It was a legislative act. And they said, no, we're going to make it part of our constitution that we have a court. Mm -hmm. And prior to 1868, the legislature did appoint the Supreme Court. So my only philosophy is to say I'm going to be fully educated about the constitutional provisions that exist currently and to carry out the intent of the framers of our state constitution which was to set up a system of checks and balances so that no one branch of government exceeded its rightful powers. I see. This doesn't really have to do with your race, but since I asked Barbara Jackson and when I talked to her, we were, you know, it was still the Brett Kavanaugh stuff was going on. What's been your takeaway from what's been going on with the Brett Kavanaugh debate? Well, I think it's an a valuable example of The fact that having an appointed system doesn't take the politics out of how we choose judges. And to me, my takeaway is it reinforces my belief that having the voters choose who is going to sit in judgment of them is the best system. I think the fundamental principle of a democracy is that people have the ability to choose who makes decisions that impact their lives. And it is without a doubt true that judges at all levels make decisions that impact people's lives. You know, I hear from a lot of people just like is this fatigue, you know, of, of about the partisanship. It seems like it's never been worse. But you have this history that maybe you have a, a different perspective on it than a lot of my friends, maybe, because you, you grew up in this era when you said like your mom and dad mm-hmm. were barred from marrying each other. So what feels like maybe things are so bad now, 
Can you put it in context? It, it, does it feel worse to you now than we've ever been? Or, or what do you think about that? Certainly there are ways in which we've made progress. The laws that used to enshrine racial segregation don't exist. But the way in which in the past couple of years our culture has now tolerated and championed in some regards a return to race-based hatred and animosity, that's a surprise to me. And that's a step backwards, without a doubt. And when I hear elementary school teachers talk about some of the things kids now say in schools to each other, it's just terrifying. So there are ways in which we've made progress, but there's also ways in which it's much worse than I I've ever experienced, actually. You talked a little bit about before uh, the, the campaigning and what you liked about it. So what, what sort of experiences have you had on the campaign trail so far? Well, for most of my career, I've been in, or encouraging people to care about voting, mm-hmm. doing civic engagement. So this is really a continuation of that, um, but from a partisan side. And what's been interesting is, in some ways, it's harder to get audiences. There aren't that many places where people gather to have partisan discussions. So that's, to me, a curious feature of our democracy. And I wonder if we wouldn't be better off if we had, you know, richer tradition of either town hall meetings or forums where we can interact uh, across party lines. And it's, it's also been really challenging because there's so many different ways that people get their information. So this whole segmentation of, you know, some people just watch cable TV news, some people don't have TV at all. You know, more people have Netflix subscriptions than cable subscriptions in this country. Yeah. Young folks, I don't know anyone under 30 who has a cable TV. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so for those folks, it's either Internet advertising or Facebook or Instagram or There's just so many different ways that you have to try to reach people, whereas I do think it's true that 30 or 40 years ago, if you were in the newspaper and on TV, you'd you'd covered your bases in terms of reaching people. Now, you have been involved in some forums, right, with your opponents? Yes. Yeah. Um, What's been your your impression of both of your opponents? Well, I think all three of us are civil and respectful. I think we have really important differences in our experience and what we are committed to in our careers. My experience has been representing individuals, families, communities in a wide range of types of cases across the state. I did criminal defense work, wide variety of civil rights cases, school desegregation, employment discrimination, voting rights, and some personal injury, automobile accident cases, um, one or two workers' comp cases. I represented teachers, NCAE members. And the other thing I've done that I think distinguishes me from my two opponents is I have tried a lot of cases to juries. So particularly in the criminal context where there still are jury trials and an appellate court is reviewing what happened during that trial, I think having the actual courtroom experience of conducting a jury trial is really valuable when you're reading a record and trying to figure out, did the court follow the law and was this a fair process? So I think that experience of both knowing, um, you know, having clients across the state from the mountains to the coastal plains and everywhere in between, as well as a wide variety of types of cases and litigation experience, trying cases, 
gives me a perspective that's different from either of my opponents and that it's a useful perspective to have on the court. I see. Chris Anglin is listed as a Republican, but it's been noted by Republican leadership, for instance, that he was registered as a Democrat up until about three weeks before the election, and they've called him a Democratic plant. Uh, Do you know anything about that situation, about who Chris Anglin is and why he decided to run and run as a Republican? I can certainly tell you I had no connection with him. I didn't know who he was. The first I'd ever seen his name was when I saw who had filed on that last day of filing. I see, yeah. Um, I have no connection with him whatsoever. The times that I've seen him in forums, I have no reason to doubt what he says himself about why he's running and no reason to doubt what he says um, in his materials, his website, his Facebook page, Mm -hmm. um, that he um, wants to chart a middle course for the Republican Party. So, you know, I can only go by what every other member of the public can go by, which is what he's saying publicly. I see. What do you want voters to know about you? Well, in addition to understanding my commitment to equal justice and upholding the North Carolina Constitution and the the individual rights that it embodies. I'm a mom and a grandma. I have two grandkids, and I'm uh, the first one in my family to go to college and to um, have the opportunity to go to law school. So I come from a very ordinary, everyday working family, and that's the perspective that I would bring to the controversies that come before the court. And you say that you've spent much of your life encouraging people to vote. There's not a U.S. Senate race on this ballot. There's not a president on this ballot. What would be your pitch to a voter who's thinking about sitting this one out? I would say even if you don't feel any stake in your local races, the statewide races, your vote counts just as much as any voter in any county. There's no districts. This is a a hotly contested state in terms of, you know, Democrat, Republican, and your vote is going to make a difference in these statewide races. And the kinds of issues that the state Supreme Court decides, everything from family law, you know, child custody, what you can say in a will, how long the police can detain you when they stop you for a traffic ticket, whether your public schools can, what kind of funding levels they'll get, issues about teacher tenure. There's all sorts of bread and butter, everyday issues that in some way or another are affected by decisions by the Supreme Court. So you should have your voice heard. Okay. Um, I think those are my questions. Is there anything we didn't cover you think we should? I guess the other thing I would say along the lines of why people should care and get engaged in this election. Um, I, I just think it's a mistake to focus so much on the presidency. I mean, even calling this a midterm suggests that it's the four-year term of the president that's what matters. The reality is this is an important election, and it's going to impact um, the direction that our country takes. Early voting starts October 17th. doesn't take that long, especially if you use early voting. So just take a, a 15 or 20 minutes and, and let your voice be heard. All right. Anita Earls, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.